developmental optometrist, award-winning author, and international speaker, Dr. Lynn Hellerstein holds powerful and inspiring conversations with her guests on Vision Beyond Sight in areas of healthcare, wellness, education, sports, and psychology. They share their inspirational stories of healing and life transformation through their vision expansion. Billions of people have vision problems, and vision is more than 2020. Vision Beyond Sight will help you see with clarity and gain courage and confidence. Your vision does not define you. You define your vision. With Dr. Lin's new way to look at your life through a new lens, you will be ready to meet yourself and receive visualizations for miracles to come. Welcome to Vision Beyond Sight. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Lynn, and welcome to Vision Beyond Sight. Today, visiting with us is my dear friend and colleague, Dr. Linda Silverman. Linda is a truly amazing person. I've had such a unique opportunity to know her and work with her with so many of our patients for at least 30-plus years. Linda's been in the cutting edge in the field of giftedness and twice exceptional. And today, we're going to talk about the importance of vision therapy for the gifted and those who are identified as twice exceptional. But uh, let me share a little, little information about Linda's very impressive and creative life here. Dr. Linda Silverman is a PhD, licensed clinical and counseling psychologist. She founded and directs the Institute for the Study of Advanced Development and its subsidiary, Gifted Development Center. And the website, and we'll mention it a few times, is gifteddevelopment.com. And that's located in Westminster, Colorado. In the last 43 years, she has studied over 6,500 children who have been assessed at the Gifted Development Center. And this is the largest data bank on this population in the world. Her PhD is in educational psychology and special education from University of Southern Cal, and she's been on the faculty of DU. She's been studying psychology and education of the gifted since 1961, which is longer than many of our listeners are old. And I'm right there with you, Linda. She's written over <laughs> 300 articles, chapters, and books, including Counseling the Gifted and Talented, Up Down, Upside Down Brilliance, The Visual Spatial Learner. And she has founded the only juried psychological journal on adult giftedness called Advanced Development. Her mission is clear. Linda's mission is to enhance global understanding of the inner world of the gifted and twice exceptional children, adolescents, and adults. She's still passionate about this, um, the gifted population, and she continues to contribute to the field at the right young age of 81. She hopes to make other psychologists, educators, and parents aware of the benefits of vision therapy. I'm just so excited to have Linda here because she has been a major factor in my practice, seeing many of her kids over years. And uh, we've been on the, quite the journey together. I think we're in our prime of our lives, Linda. So welcome to Vision, <laughs> <laughs> vision Beyond Sight podcast. Thank you. I just wanted to uh, make one little correction in our website. It used to be 
gifteddevelopment.com, and we changed it to gifteddevelopment.org. Oh, thank you for that. So we'll make sure we change the uh, show notes to reflect that. Thank you. Okay. So so let's uh, let's start by defining a few terms that I've mentioned, and you're going to talk a lot about what is GT gifted and what is 2E, twice exceptional. Okay. Uh, so I think I do need to define giftedness because a lot of people think that giftedness is just being good at school. <laughs> and if you're academically achieving, you must be smart. Uh, but that really isn't what it's about. And there are a lot of gifted kids who don't like school, don't apply themselves, and they don't feel comfortable with the boring material at the very slow pace that it's offered compared to what they're capable of learning. So academic achievement may not be the way that they show how smart they are, but it, it essentially it is abstract reasoning. And you get to see this kind of abstract reasoning in very young children, how they solve problems, even as toddlers, sometimes as newborns. Uh, we had one case on record of a uh, a, a newborn infant who was at in a uh, prenatal ward in NICU and would scream at the top of his lungs until all the other babies were screaming and then stop and listen. <laughs> Brilliant so, at a young age. <laughs> <laughs> How you know your child is gifted from birth. But we, we do see... Uh, a developmental advancement as well in gifted children. They go through the developmental milestones at a faster rate, and that's uh, predictive of high intelligence. So there's a lot of different views about giftedness out there, but the one that we ascribe to has to do with what we call asynchronous development, and that is uneven development of abilities because their minds develop faster than their hands and their feet. And this leads to a lot of um, difficulties. And if the asynchrony is very great, then that child may, in fact, be twice exceptional. If there's a huge disparity between how the child reasons and, as you've seen at your center, Lynn, how well they write. One of the major things that you've noticed is that their visual motor coordination doesn't keep up with their mental ability. And that's one of the main uh, symptoms in the children we've sent you. Well, that's so true, Linda. I don't know if you remember years ago, I told you my picture of a gifted kid was uh, uh, just an abstract creative thinker who couldn't write. And right. you looked at me like, what are you talking about? That's not true for all gifted kids, but that's true of the kids you send me. <laughs> so I had no, this little it's... slice of, of seeing, especially the two E, the twice exceptional children, that they they could understand pictures and they were creative and artistic, but they couldn't, their bodies did not always respond to what they were thinking. And, and what I tell many of my parents when we're doing an evaluation it's like 
think of your child as a computer system. They have this wonderful processor, and it's hooked up to an old dot matrix printer. And <laughs> if parents are old it. enough, they understand that analogy. If they're not, and I have to explain what the old dot matrix <laughs> printer is. But it's like, you know, the processor keeps going, and then it's done, but the printer still goes and goes and goes, and it just can't keep up with go- what's going on with the processor. Oh, that's a wonderful analogy, Lynn. So uh, it's true that not all gifted children have that as their issue. There are gifted children who are dyslexic, and I want to talk a little bit about them. Uh, and there are gifted children who have auditory processing problems. But if I were to list the one major discrepancy, it would be exactly what you saw. Gifted kids very often hate to write. They they hate to handwrite. And they have a developmental motor coordination disorder, or they can't get their ideas down on paper, or something about the writing process just hangs them up. And that that is one of the most salient, twice exceptional issues. Right. So, Linda, if you could explain to our listeners, how would a teacher or parent be able to identify a child who might be gifted? I know some schools do screenings, but as you know, many of the gifted, especially kiddos that are twice exceptional, may not do as well on that screening and not be identified. So what can a parent look for to determine maybe they have a, a child is gifted or 2E? The major sign that we're seeing is verbal ability. And I'm a big proponent of visual spatial learners, but even visual spatial learners, your early builders and your late talkers, they once they do start to talk, their vocabulary is phenomenal. They say things like actually and precisely, and they ask unusual questions that nobody else is asking. They come to really remarkable conclusions. They're in a classroom. They may not get their homework done, but in a in a class discussion, they may have the most profound information to share with the class. They That may be where they shine. Or you might have a child who is uh, phenomenally artistic, a child who can see perspective way before other children can do that in their art. But they, they'll show you in some way some quality that is very different from the other kids. And uh, it's that quality of mind that the teacher is most likely to be able to notice whether the child is twice exceptional or the child is what we call garden variety gifted if, if they're <laughs> Or, or plain vanilla gifted, if they're gifted without any disabilities, or they're twice exceptional, they really will shine in problem solving and in class discussions and in 
the way in which they relate to the teacher. That I, I love when I first started teaching, um, there were many kids who treated me like a role. I was a teacher. But then the gifted kids always knew that I was a human being, that I was a person, that I shopped, that I had kids, that I had political beliefs. And they would ask me all these rude questions about who am I? Because they didn't see me as the role. They saw me as a as a person. That's something gifted kids do. They also crack you up. They have a fantastic sense of humor. And so you might say a joke and they might be the only one who laughs. Right, right. And I love that part of them. Uh, they just see the multi um use of words and and can yes. go with that which is great and i'm sure there's and then also in the, in the in the test the verbal scores are much more likely to reflect their abilities and anything they do that is untimed they do not do well in timed situations but uh you if you give them sufficient time or you give them a verbal test that's where they'll shine well, I love what you said, garden variety gifted kids. Those are obvious. People see it. They know it. Um, it's those two E kiddos that I call undercover. And and that's why I have valued your work so much in that when I'll do my testing and I'll see just a couple scores on my tests that indicate that they might be gifted, just doing some visual processing testing. And I go on a limb, even rec you know, telling parents that and and I, I wish we had the numbers. How many kids, once they got appropriate treatment for some of their uh, barriers, whether it's visual, auditory, sensory, motor, um, all the all the above, that they end up being identified as gifted, and that opens a whole new world of opportunity and and learning for them. Um, so those those two e kids are are sometimes challenging to really pick out. Uh, you mentioned. Well, I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad that you mentioned that you look at the high scores, and I hope there are other optometrists who are listening to this, because the key in in finding them and understanding them is to recognize that those high scores are very, very meaningful, and that and you pay really close attention to them and you look at their low scores and you look at the discrepancy between them rather than comparing them to the norms. That's such a great point and that's what I love about when I do a consultation after all the testing's done. There may only be one score in visual processing that's 99%, but that's not an accident. When we see all these low no, scores, no. we always wonder, hmm, do they really have deficits in the skill? Were they messing around, poor attention? But if there's one high school score, it's like they gave themselves away here. And now our exactly. job is to figure out, yep, what needs to be done and um, and go with it. So I love consults when pay often they've had tough kids, behavior, education, emotional, and all they've heard is all the bad stuff going on with them and all the problems they have. And then I'll say, you know, there are a couple high scores that I'm really concerned about because of the potential of they may be either gifted or very bright. And we're not addressing that side of them because all these other issues are creating such havoc with them. And parents. Well, I want to, 
I want to mention uh, that a lot of optometrists use the Gardner test of visual perception, and mm-hmm. that one is highly loaded on general intelligence. So a lot of uh, twice exceptional kids who desperately need vision therapy are going to go to a vision therapist, are going to an optometrist, might get that test, and they might do very well, and the optometrist might conclude that they don't need vision therapy because that test can obscure a real need for vision therapy because the child can solve those particular items without visual processing. They can do it through their abstract reasoning. Well, that's the test I was referring to. And so often, because for the listeners who don't know, it's called the TVPS, Test of Visual Perceptual Skills, non-motor, meaning there's no writing, there's no time on it. And often I think they actually have good visual processing processing skills when you don't have the motor and time restrictions, or it could be abstract reading, but that's the test that tells me they do need vision therapy (laughs) because it's so high if the other scores, the visual motor and and other body kinds of scores don't support, you know, the thinking, they're going to run into problems. And it's usually frustration or avoidance of task. Yes. And we also had a child that we referred in California to one of our very favorite optometrists. And uh, this boy was profoundly gifted. He did brilliantly on the TBPS. And he also did brilliantly on the Bender visual motor integration test because he was an artist and he could Uh. copy those designs perfectly. And so the they thought, no, he's fine, but he wasn't. He really did need vision therapy. It's just that he was an artist and profoundly gifted, and he was showing his strengths, but he wasn't. they weren't picking up on the subtle weaknesses. Well, and in that population, a subtle weakness might look like a normal score, a 50 percentile. Exactly, exactly. Oh. So we can't just compare these kids to the norms which is what we're all taught to do as clinicians, because the norms were developed on average children. They weren't developed on gifted children. And average, as you pointed out too, average isn't good enough. These kids need enhanced vision, which is a piece of the whole vision therapy world that gets overlooked. And it's right in the mission of COVD. You need to be aware that there are children who need greater than average vision. And and uh, I remember sending one kid to an optometrist in Portland who um, did the most amazing work with this boy. And the, the mother wrote back to me and said, When I asked what our goals were for P's vision for the therapy, the doctor responded that rather than automatically stopping therapy as soon as P had reached the norms for his age and grade, we might want to continue until he performs visually with the speed and ease that is commensurate with his intellectual ability, undoubtedly far above the norm. Well, that's so beautifully said, and you were the one who really taught me that lesson 
when, you know, 40 plus years ago, when I started seeing these kinds of patients and they showed, quote, normal scores, you know, how can I take them into therapy? The problem was my own mindset of normal. And, you you know, luckily I had experience working with super athletes who are, they need skills so far above normal to be able to hit that 100 mile an hour fastball or do the kind of gymnastics and, and those kinds of skills. And it was my own mind step that my own mindset that kept me stuck in thinking that if if it's average or normal, and that's what medicine does a lot, no T's and P's and general optometrists, is that get them to Norman is fine. But when we're working with the population um, who are gifted, again, it's like this top notch computer processor. It needs all of its other uh, tools to be able to support that person, just like a computer, exactly. if you have a great processor and a terrible printer and keyboard, you know, you're going to run into troubles and in trying to be efficient with this computer. So Linda, we're going to take a break here in just a minute. When we get back, I really want to get into our experiences together in vision therapy, how it's um, changed not only the quality of life and some stories that we can share but that we actually had some preliminary research on um, how vision therapy cha could change IQs on some of the children here. So uh, we'll be back in just a minute here. Okay. Thanks. Dr. Lin will be right back after this. Discover the power of the seeing brain, the creator of your true vision. Dr. Lynn Hellerstein's number one bestseller book, Expand Your Vision, helps you see with clarity and gain courage and confidence. Remove roadblocks and visualize your new lens to see and experience your world. Get Expand Your Vision on Amazon or visit lynnhellerstein.com. Developmental optometrist, award-winning author, and international speaker, Dr. Lynn Hellerstein holds powerful and inspiring conversations with her guests on Vision Beyond Sight in areas of healthcare, wellness, education, sports, and psychology. They share their inspirational stories of healing and life transformation through their vision expansion. Vision Beyond Sight will help you find clarity in your functional vision and expand the power of your seeing brain to gain courage, confidence, and success in your life. Join Dr. Lynn each week for a new exciting episode, Vision Beyond Sight. Can your child organize, really organize? Parents and teachers will have practical step-by-step -step strategies and templates to help get their children organized with Dr. Lynn Hellerstein's 
Organize It Workbook. Increased organizational skills create success and confidence in school, sports, and life. Get Organize It on Amazon or visit lynnhellerstein.com. Welcome back to Vision Beyond Sight. Here's Dr. Lynn. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. We have the wonderful opportunity of speaking with my dear friend and colleague, Dr. Linda Silverman, who is an expert in giftedness, and and her PhD is also in learning disabilities and special education. So she has such unique uh, experience and training and looking at these kids in a much different way. And, and I think that's one of the reasons why she got so interested in vision therapy. I mean, tell us a story, how you've learned about it and, and what you've seen with vision therapy. Well, it was all your fault. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I, I, uh, I think what, as I recall, I had done a report uh, and someone brought that to you and you became interested in me and came, asked me to go to lunch with you and talk to me about vision therapy. And then I became, it was like a terrific eye opener for me. It was exactly what I was looking for. And I started sending you clients and uh, it was our work together that, got me so involved in vision therapy. I saw big discrepancies between children's verbal scores and their nonverbal scores, which at the time was either performance on a Wexler scale or it was the item analysis on a Stanford-Binet, and they could not visualize. They could not do the vision items, the visually presented items. And I really wasn't sure what to do with them until we met. Well, I love your your languaging. You said after we met and you learned about vision therapy, it was a real eye opener. <laughs> which is <laughs> I didn't even exactly, realize the pun. <laughs> yeah, which was exactly what happened. And do you remember how long ago that was? Was it thirty years, forty years? Uh, you know, I did not look in my CV to try to figure that out. But um, in 1985, that it could have been nine. It could have been around 1985. Yeah, that's that's possible. It just seems like my whole life of being a developmental optometrist, you've been there with me, and and you're <laughs> teaching, uh, looking at them through the whisk, which is the classical one of the classical tests testing used for uh, evaluating giftedness. Uh, you taught me a few of those kinds of tests, what you look for. Uh, but why is it that so many other kids have testing like this? And so often the disparities are actually even seen, but there's still such a lack of education with psychologists, special educators, and, and, and parents as to what can be done. Rather than just say we have a disparity, why aren't more children receiving appropriate help, do you think? I, I think it's because there's 
um, a bias in psychology against vision therapy. Uh, it's sort of like the bias that has existed in uh, the medical field against chiropractors. And there's this attitude that uh, what vision therapists or optometrists are doing is voodoo, and it has no basis. And I want to share with you and with your listeners something that was just sent to me yesterday, and I'm so excited about it. It's um, an issue of the annals of dyslexia. And even in the dyslexic world, people have been very biased against vision therapy and have tried to debunk it as if it's some kind of myth. And this article, which is fabulous, talks about the research that was done in Europe on the visual processing under uh, foundation of dyslexia. Everybody has been, you know, on the phonemic awareness bandwagon for as long as I can remember, that they just drill phonemes into these kids until the kids are ready to kill themselves. But they do not understand the role of vision in dyslexia. And this particular journal that just came out talks about that. And when I was reading this last night, uh, it said that 15% of the world, the global population, 15% are dyslexic. And that's like a, a billion, more than a billion people in the world are dyslexic. When I see dyslexia, the very first thing I do is send them to you or to other optometrists anywhere in the world. Because the number one improvement that parents report to me and have always reported to me is after vision therapy, my child is a reader. Now, it's true I'm dealing with just the gifted population. Maybe that's not true for the average population. I can't answer that. But I can tell you that we give 20 to 40 recommendations, and I've had parents come up to me at conferences and say, the best recommendation you ever gave me was vision therapy. That helped my child the most. Other optometrists, other uh, psychologists don't get it. Yeah. Well, and thank you. Um, I'm, I'm so moved by your experience of you get to see them after therapy because you often reevaluate them a year or two later. Um, you know, I certainly could speak to the benefits of vision therapy, but I want to make sure our listeners understand vision therapy. There's a number of other podcasts that I have that you can learn more about vision therapy or look up COVD, College of Optometrists and Vision Development, covd.org, or my own website, lynnhellerstein.com, and look at the resources because uh, this new article that you just sent me yesterday in the Annals of Dyslexia, is another piece of some great scientific evidence showing how vision therapy is so helpful 
in in lots of areas, not just dyslexia, but uh, kids that have learning disabilities or eye-hand coordination problems or adults after stroke or brain injury. And so I want the our listeners to understand it's not just strengthening eyeballs. That's what people think vision therapy, and it's not that at all. It's really teaching the person how to utilize their brain to move their eyes smoother, more coordinated, focus better, as well as a lot of visual processing, visualization, visual motor. So it's a high-level brain integration treatment. So when we look at it more from the brain perspective than, quote, the vision eyeball perspective, then you really understand why vision therapy for these types of issues can be very effective on that. Um, Let's jump to our research that we had done years ago on looking at some of your kiddos who had been to the Gifted Development Center and had WISC testing, and you refer them off. And we, uh, those of patients that needed vision therapy, we did therapy, and then you reevaluated those kids. And speak to what happened to some of their IQ scores. Well, I think the most phenomenal one is one that was a case that we sent to you, and. Um, This boy had a very high IQ to start with. Uh, He was, his full scale IQ was 139 plus, which is at the 99.5th percentile. The plus means that he went, he went all the way to the hardest item on uh, comprehension and he, he never reached a discontinue criteria criterion on that test so that whatever score we got was still an underestimate. But still, his visually presented um, items were, um, were, were much lower than his verbally presented items. So verbal comprehension, this was on a WISC-4, his verbal comprehension was 144 plus, but his perceptual reasoning, and that's all presented visually, was 129. That's a pretty big discrepancy. His a working memory was 135, which is in the gifted range. But his processing speed was 112, which is all visually presented. And it's a speed. It's about speed. Uh, how fast, and this is something I learned from you, that uh, the fact that it takes longer to get your eyes to focus is going to affect your ability to do things fast. And this was supported in that uh, Annals of Dyslexia article about the speed with which you can focus and how it affects reading. So this boy... Uh, he had a 112 in processing speed. He went through vision therapy with you. He's now an adult, and he still talks about the impact of vision therapy on his life and how much it helped him. So his um, verbal uh, comprehension stayed the same as it was before vision therapy. It was got a, you know in the same range, and his perceptual reasoning went up to the gifted range. It was below that. It went up to 135. His working memory uh, went up a little bit, but it was his processing speed that knocked our socks off. 
That went from 112 to 164 plus. Wow. And he got scores that were so high they that we had to use extended norms, which is a whole other podcast to talk about. But there are extended norms on the WISC-5 and the WISC-4 for exceptionally gifted kids. And he got his scores on coding and simple search were so high. They were 20 and 22. They were off the charts. And to go from 112 to 164 plus was amazing. And his full scale IQ went from 139 plus to 157 plus. So he really was an, an amazing success stories. But I've collected numerous success stories over the years of kids who not only improved in their visually presented items, but they also improved on their verbal and their working memory, which just completely shocked me. I did not understand how that was possible, but it was true. And I've seen the pattern in other kids as well. Uh, A funny story. We had siblings that I sent to you uh, many, many, many years ago. And uh, (laughs) the boy, you said, oh, he definitely needs vision therapy. But the girl, his sister, you said, no, she doesn't. Well, what she did, because she was jealous of her brother, is that (laughs) she did his vision therapy exercises with him. And the parents were very curious about what this would do with their IQ scores. So they brought them in a year later, and both of the kids improved dramatically. I don't have those scores in front of me, but I know that they both improved dramatically on verbal scores as well as on processing speed and perceptual reasoning. And it was the daily practice, even though she wasn't a patient of yours, that helped her improve her scores as well. What a great story that is, Linda. Uh, that's that's great. Why don't you explain now? You and I have published a couple articles together, and we've spoken um, nationally together a few times. And why do we not have this study published um, that there's more than just one case history that a group of patients that we worked with and your clients go ahead and explain why that study was never published. I think we just got too busy. Well, we, I've got, it was a whisk four. Yeah. Well, the, the whisk four was replaced by the whisk five. And so it got to be, an outdated test, I think, by the time we finally got around to it. Right. And that's what I recall is we were so excited. We were getting a graduate student to start doing the stats. And it was right at the time when the WISC-5 came out. Came out, right. right. And therefore, nobody cared about findings on the WISC-4 anymore. So that study needs to be redone with the current IQ testing for sure. Well, yes. We had the same thing happen. Uh, with another study that we did on the uh, assessment protocols of 334 kids nationwide on the WISC-4 and never published it. And so we're in the midst now 
of publishing another study of uh, kids from seven sites in the United States, 390 of them. And what we're going to do is incorporate the WISC-4 findings in that study that we published. So you and I could do the same thing. We could do a WISC-5 study, push the WISC-5 findings together. Oh, that's very interesting. For another topic, <laughs> we'll talk about that. You know, uh, <laughs> we've got work to do. That's right. We mentioned processing speed, and um, I've been fascinated with that. And I've asked some of the patients that we've worked with to explain why some of the activities take so long. Is it that it really isn't clear? Is it focusing? Is what is it? And it's a combination of things that includes often some visual dysfunctions, but it's also their thinking process. Some are perfectionists, so they check it a million times. So to do something quickly will never happen because they have to check and check and check. And some of them see the world so differently. It's almost like if they took a multiple choice test and there's the first question, they'll look at answer A and they go, no, that's not right. However, if this situation and context was different, I think this could be a correct answer. Let me look at B. Oh, that's really wrong. But, you know, if they did this, you know, so they're analyzing, overanalyzing what's meant to be a simple test. And I think some of their processing strengths become their liabilities when we talk about speed well, of processing. Well, there's, there's, another, there's another one. Uh, I wrote the book, Upside Down Brilliance, The Visual Spatial Learner, to introduce the concept of these right hemispheric uh, dominant kids who don't really have a sense of time. Time lives in the left hemisphere. And if kids have very powerful right hemispheres, they live in the now and they just don't rush. They don't hurry. You can't get them out the door to go to school. They don't understand the concept of missing the bus. They just don't get time. And so you give them a time test and they dawdle. They go slowly. They stop and ask you questions. They think about other things because time doesn't have the same meaning for them. That is so interesting. Thank you for sharing that. I'm... um... I'm sorry to tell you, we're almost out of time. We could go on forever, and I, I'm sure I will have you back for another time. Um, but I want to make sure you share with our listeners how they might reach you uh, and for your books, for consultation as well. We have about two minutes to for you to share that. Uh, GiftedDevelopment.org is our website, and we have an awful lot of free information. We'd love you to sign up for our newsletter. And uh, Lynn, we would love to have a column from you for our newsletter. The uh, The newsletter is uh, free. It's just a matter of going to our website and signing up, sending us your email. And we just love to, to talk to parents. That's our, our favorite group of people. Um, over the last 43 years that I've had the center going, it's been my honor to be able to work with the world's best parents, most uh, dedicated to their children, not hot housing, not academically oriented. They don't care who their children become. They just want their children to be happy 
And um, so we we are child-centered at our center. Everyone calls everybody by their first name. And we um, we work collaboratively with the parents to come up with an optimal development plan for their children when they bring their children in for testing. And, and I can attest is, to that. And I'm sorry that we're out of time here, Linda. But I okay. send many people for information, lots of free information, great consultation to the Gifted Development Center. Thank you. Thank you for your insights, for our friendship, for all that you've taught me. I so love you, and thank you for being here today. Thank you, Lynn. I love you, too. Thank you for joining us today on Vision Beyond Sight. Join Dr. Lynn Hellerstein each week to help you find clarity in your functional vision and expand the power of your seeing brain to gain courage, confidence, and success in your life. Remember, your vision does not define you. You define your vision. For more information and find additional podcasts, visit lynnhellerstein.com. See you next time on Vision Beyond Sight.